How are you guys? So not so good, huh? <laughs> good. My name is Ben. I'm, uh, I'm one of the pastors here. I uh, got the, the privilege of spending all day yesterday and Friday night in Memphis. Uh, was there. I have, I have a couple different jobs. This is one of them. Uh, another one is uh, that I'm a church planting strategist for the Nashville Baptist Association. And so what that means is I drink a lot of coffee with pastors and church planters. Um, but, uh, but really, you know, I, I think it's probably similar to how it is with the military. I'm not in the military. But with military guys, I'm assuming that if you've been in the military, you have an instant connection with other guys who have been in the military that people who haven't been through that just can't understand. There's just kind of like a, we understand each other. There's a connection in a way that other people don't get. Pastoring and church planning is the same way. There's a, there's a connection that I have with, with other church planters um, that other people just don't get because until you've done that, until you've tried to do that endeavor, you just kind of don't get it. And so I, when I say I spend a lot of my time drinking coffee with pastors, I really feel called, the number one thing I feel called to do, like we want to see new churches planted all over Nashville. Uh, and you say, oh, that sounds crazy. There's tons of churches. Yeah, 80 to 90% of them are dying, number one, newsflash, okay, which is crazy. And number two, we live in the gospel-haunted South, which means everybody's just got enough religion to not really understand the gospel. And so there are millions of people in our town and in our state who do not know Jesus and do not understand the real gospel. So that's why we want to see new churches planted. And so I'm, I'm just, I feel like the biggest part, other than wanting to see new churches planted, of my job is just to come alongside and encourage these guys and just be someone who gets it, to be a, a safe person. And so I, I love that job and, and still shocked that God gave it to me. Uh, but as we were traveling down, so we're, we're getting to equip a, a church in Memphis um, that's seeking to plant. And um, on the way down, my counterpart at the state level, Lewis McMullen, um, so he's over church planting for the whole state. Uh, we were riding together, and we were just talking. And one of the things I told him uh, that I'm convinced and that I see is that for some reason, this year, 2017, seems to be the year where, when I'm speaking about churches across the board, that for a lot of us, things are just falling apart at the seams. There are more dying churches that I'm coming into contact with than I've ever seen before. There are more churches who don't know how to make disciples that I'm coming into contact with than I've ever seen before. I mean, the people show up, but they don't know what it means to follow Jesus. The people come, but they have no idea how to win their friends to Jesus. The culture is at a rapid pace, changing more so than it has been, even in the last 20 years. And we are dealing with this gay, lesbian, transgender animal in the room. And so many Christians don't know how to deal with it. We don't know how to boldly say, we follow the Bible, and it says this about sexuality, and it leaves us all feeling rotten, and at the same time go, and I love you, and I have, and I have no right to condemn you. And so we just see, we see either Christians denying the truth and the reality that sin is real and punishable by death, according to the Bible, and and, and we have churches abandoning that, and we also have Christians struggling and abandoning the truth that God loves us 
more than we could ever possibly understand and that we do not come to him based on our performance that yes we all stand condemned and sinful before a holy righteous God and yet he does not leave us in that place but for all who will place faith in him he says I love you I did not want heaven without you so Jesus you came down and and I just see so many I mean in myself struggling to hold those two things in tension and to say sin is real and it's bad and Jesus is good and his love is more large and huge than you could possibly imagine. And so in some ways, we're not living in a Christian nation. In a lot of ways, we're living in first century, a people living under Babylon's rule And everything around us is against us, but our Savior's real, and he's coming again. And we're called in the midst of this culture to stand firm on the truth of this word and to know who God really is. Not someone that we get to make up into our own image and just want whatever God that we want that seems easy, but to stand with, to to go back to this word again and again and say, what does this Holy, inerrant, infallible word teach us about who God is. That's the God I'm following. That's the God I'm trusting in. We, we see this, I was just thinking while we were singing. We see this in Exodus, which is not where we're going to land today. But it's this famous passage where, where Moses says, in Exodus 33, he says, Moses says to God, please show me your glory. I, I want to see you. And God says, I'll make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and I'll show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. But he said, you can't see my face for a man cannot see me and live. I mean, that's, that's God's holiness. It's, it's so, his goodness is so good and so powerful and he's so different that we can't even look upon him and live if all his Shekinah shines on us. But, but God says, but I'm going to let you see my back. You can see a little bit of me, which must have been amazing. And as God passes before him, I want you to see the juxtaposition, which is the whole sermon today, of these two ideas, right? The, the reality of justice and the, and the goodness of God's mercy, okay? Both. And he says, the Lord passed before him. So he hides Moses in the cleft of the rock, says, I'm going to cover your eye, your eyes with my hand because you can't see me. Uh, you can't see my face. You'll die. Okay, but you'll see my back. And as he passes by and Moses gets to see his back, he proclaims to Moses who he is. And this is what he proclaims. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. He says, he says I, Moses, don't get it twisted. I am merciful and gracious and compassionate in ways that you can't even fathom how good I am to you, but I want you to understand I am also just. And the good news for all of us is that the way that those two ideas, the intense 
love of God for us and his intense um, you know, steadfastness to justice, the way those two ideas come together. And the only way, by the way, that the entire Bible makes any sense whatsoever is that they come together in the cross because at the cross, God fully pours out all of his wrath and justice towards yours and my sin. And he pays for it. Well, Jesus pays for it. God says, I want to save these people. I don't want heaven without them. So I'm sending my son. I'm sending myself to earth so that he can bear the intense wrath and displeasure that I have for sin. And I can pay the penalty for sin for these people and I can love them intensely. Without the cross, God can't love us. He would be unjust because he always punishes sin. He always does what is right. And that's what I want us to see again today in Zephaniah. Uh, so if you will, go ahead and turn with me to Zephaniah. And uh, if you need a Bible, we have some in the back. If you'd raise your hand, we'd love to give you one. It's page 788 in that Bible. It'll also be on the screens, or you can pull it up in your phone. Zephaniah is right near the end of the, the Old Testament. It's one of the last few books. And Zephaniah, it says, uh, in the first verse, you don't have to be there yet, but you can be turned on there in 788. It says, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So he, the thing I want you to pick out of there especially is that he is ministering during the days of Josiah the king. Josiah the king was the uh, grandson, so, so remember in Israel, if you know anything about Old Testament, if you don't, let me fill you in for a second. Remember after Solomon, David's son, like David, man after God's own heart, shepherd boy, killed Goliath. His son Solomon, after he became king and his kingship was done with, remember that the nation split. And so you had, you had 12 tribes of Israel and, and the nation split and 10 tribes became Israel and two tribes became Judah. And so you had northern and southern kingdoms. And when you read through First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, you get all this history about all those kings. And there was a lot of rotten kings and a few good kings. And so you're following both nations. Well, at the time that Zephaniah is prophesying, when Josiah is the king, Israel has so walked away from God that they've been a they've already been defeated. They were invaded. The, the land was destroyed. Um, their people were carried away into exile. Everything was in complete shambles, okay? And only Judah is left. So the kingdom of Judah is left, and Judah is where Jerusalem is. It seemed, the more the focus seems to be on Judah than on Israel, the two tribes of Judah. And so they're left, and, and Josiah's the king at the time when Zephaniah is giving these prophecies, okay? And uh, Josiah was a good king, but, but the times were still perilous because right before Josiah had been king, his dad was a pretty rotten king who only ruled for two years. And before him, his grandfather was one of the most exceedingly wicked kings in Judah's history. And I want, I want you to get a little bit about that history. You don't have to turn there, but you can listen uh, as I read this. If you go to 2 Kings and you read about it, I think it'll be on the screen, 2 Kings 21, Manasseh was Josiah's grandfather. And I want you to listen to how jacked up 
Manasseh was. Manasseh was 12 years old. See, he was a 12-year-old kid when he became king. That sounds crazy. He was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Now listen to all the things that Manasseh does. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah's father had destroyed. Those are other places of worship, where you worship not God, but other gods. He rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah's father had destroyed. He erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab, king of Israel, done and worshiped all the hosts of heaven and served them. Remember, as Chris pointed out to us four or five weeks ago, oftentimes the way that they're worshiping these foreign gods is, is orgiistic in nature. So they're actually going to a pagan place of worship and, and they're having sex unto these other gods. Partially because they related fertility and sexuality with fertility in the land and they were a very agrarian people. So they're saying, they're thinking in their mind, if we have sex, then it's going to sow the seed and then the seed in the land's going to be sown and we're going to have good crops. So they're continually not trusting in God of Israel to provide for their crops to grow and to take care of them, but in these foreign gods. And so there is rampant sexuality. Just background here. So Baal, Asherah, verse four, and he built, altar, he built altars in the house of the Lord. So the temple of God, he actually built foreign altars in there. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven and the two courts of the house of the Lord. So just all kinds of foreign gods. He's just building altars everywhere. Verse six, and he burned his son as an offering so child sacrifice, I mean, that's how dark it was. And used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And he carved an image of Asherah and he made, that he had made and set it in the house of the Lord and said to David and to Solomon his son, who the Lord had said to David and Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander anymore out of the land that I gave their fathers. If only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Um, so that, 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 that is the atmosphere of all, all that idolatry and sin and child sacrifice and just unspeakable evil. And then Ammon comes into power for two years. He doesn't last long. And then Josiah, and it says in 2 Kings 22, Josiah was eight, year old, eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidiah, or Jediah the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath, or however you pronounce those names. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the way of David, his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. So Josiah is now king, and he's a good king, and he's trying to turn the nation back to God. And that is when Zephaniah 
is prophesying. And we don't know exactly where in the reign of Josiah that Zephaniah is entering in. Could have been the whole thing, could have been the beginning, could have been the end. There's this great revival under Josiah where they, it's actually an awesome story. He has them kind of repairing the temple because uh, it had been somewhat messed up. And so Josiah says, go in, gather money. We're going to start doing repairs. And while they're in there searching around in the temple, they find the Bible. I mean, they had lost it. Okay, so they, they didn't, remember, not everybody had a copy or, or a smartphone in those days. They had scrolls. And so they, they find a scroll, like back in a corner in the temple. They find it, and they're like, oh, this, this seems important. And so they bring it to Josiah, and they said, look what we found. And he's like, read it. And he reads it, and he begins to weep. He's like, oh, man, we have really broken the covenant. We have really screwed this thing up. And so he calls all the people, come back and sit under the authority of the word and, and to listen to it and to hear what God said again. And there's this revival in the land. And he, he, goes, he goes like straight up uh, William Wallace on like all these altars and pagan gods. Like he, he destroys them, he burns them, he kills the priests who are, who are like uh, the priests of Baal and Asherah. I mean, he, he clears out the sin in the land. And so we, we don't know if that's already happened when Zephaniah is prophesying or if that's yet to happen, but somewhere in the mix, he's there. And so when we get, that's all background. So now when we get to Zephaniah, we look at what he's saying. And Zephaniah's book is, is almost depressing to read until the end. It's three chapters long. And when you read Zephaniah, he's talking about the day of the Lord, which is a phrase that we see repeated in Scripture a lot. And the day of the Lord is this day of coming judgment when God sets things back right. And he says, the day of the Lord's coming, Judah. He's gonna punish us for all our sin. It's bad. And that's the first point I just wanna make to you. Sin is real, and it's ugly, and we're all caught in it. When he describes what it was like, Zephaniah says this, one, Zephaniah 1.12. He says, at that time, I'll search Jerusalem with lamps and I'll punish the men who are complacent. And listen to what it says. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do, that the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their attitude is just like, the Lord is not gonna judge us. It's laughable. All this covenant stuff, break the covenant, follow the covenant, be good, be bad, whatever. That's their attitude. And Zephaniah says, no, the day of the Lord's coming. Uh, in a, in a, another place in chapter two, it says, this shall be their lot in return for their pride because they taunted and boasted against the people of the, the Lord of hosts. I mean, it's just, it's just this, God, God's not gonna judge us. Sin is not really that big a deal. But Zephaniah is, is trying to urge the people to see that sin is a huge deal. Here, here's the way Romans, Apostle Paul in Romans, describes sin, describes us. And he says, what then? Are, are we Jews any better off? Not at all. 
for all we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. So he says, whether you're a Jew, Jewish person, I mean, it's Paul speaking, and he says, and you've grown up knowing the Torah and knowing the word of God, knowing all the rules, or whether you are a Gentile and you haven't grown up with any knowledge of God and any of the rules. And so that we fit into that, even though we're not Jews and Gentiles, so to speak, uh, whether you've grown up in a Christian home and you've been taught right and wrong really well, or whether you've not grown up in a home like that and you haven't really been taught all that well, regardless of if you're religious or irreligious, here's what Paul says. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. He is speaking about us when he says all those words. And every person who's ever lived, that's who we are. You say, well, Ben, I've never, I'm, my throat is an open grave. Is that really me? You know, uh, they're, with their tongues deceived, I don't really consider myself much of a liar. Are you sure he's talking to me? Uh, you know, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are shifted to sweat, shed blood. I've never killed anybody. Uh, is, is that me? Well, the answer is yes. And here's the best way I know how to describe it. If you think about the, the show Breaking Bad, which I'm not necessarily condoning that you watch, okay, but I've watched it, full, full disclosure. It's a rough show, but Hank, the central character, seems like a pretty decent guy. He doesn't seem like that bad of a guy, but when put in the right situation, I have cancer, and I'm broke, and my wife makes me miserable, and yada, yada, yada. He was willing to go farther into sin than he ever thought that he would go. And you and I, if put in the right situation, apart from Jesus, are willing to go farther and deeper into sin than we ever thought possible. You and I are Heisenberg. He's just hiding back in there. And he hasn't been fully revealed. If God were to just remove all common grace from this world and let all of our hearts go the way that they really want to go apart from him, we, we would dive more headlong into sin than we can ever imagine. I mean, we, this is us in our natural state apart from Jesus and apart from grace. And some of us, all of us, some of us even more so, have tasted a little bit of that darkness and we've run into things that we never thought that we would do. And we hate it, and we try to hide it. We don't want anybody to know about it. All of us have smelled the sewage of our heart from time to time and want to hide it and don't want anybody to know. Ephesians puts it this way, describing us. We're describing Christians, but he tells them, he reminds them of who they were. Apostle Paul in Ephesians says this, you were dead, this is who we are apart from Jesus, you were dead in the trespasses, you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. So you were a Satan worshiper apart from Jesus, whether you realized you were or not. All of us apart from Jesus are Satan worshipers. We just don't realize it. 
following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. So we stand condemned under the wrath of a holy God, all of us, apart from Jesus. And that's Zephaniah's message for two-thirds of the book. But then, and this is, this is awesome, because I don't just want to give you the bad news. I want to give you the good news. In Zephaniah 3, it makes this sudden turn. And God says, despite all that, despite the sin of everybody, I, John puts it this way, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. We have to be reminded of the bad news so that we know how good the good news is. It's the same way like when you go buy a diamond, right? Like if you ever get engaged and you, and you build a ring or something like that. Like I had this experience. I went to go pick out the engagement band uh, for Megan and, I, and I, I want that one. And they're like, well, which diamond do you want? Genesis Diamonds got me with their commercial. So that's where I was. And so <laughs> my accent was always on value. You know, like I was that guy. So I'm there and... Um, I pick out the setting I want, and I, and I got to pick out the stones. And, and what they do is they put out this black velvet piece of cloth, and then they put these diamonds on the, the black cloth. Why do, they, why do they put it on black? It shine more, but really so that you can see how shiny it is. You don't want to put it on like a beige piece of cloth. It might just kind of blend in. You, you, need the, you need the dark to see how good the light is. You and I need the reminder, even though they say, man, this is sounding like kind of a bummer message, Ben. We need the reminder constantly of how bad our sin is so we know how good the jewel of Jesus is. And, and we live in a culture that wants to diminish our sin. And so I want to highlight our sin, but not so I can leave us feeling condemned in our sin, but so that I can point out how good it is that Jesus came to save us and redeem us from the wrath of God. And so God is never finished with anybody. If you're still living, there is still hope today for you to place your faith in Jesus and be forgiven of your sin and no longer stand condemned under the wrath of God. And so it says at the end of this book, Zephaniah in chapter three, verse nine, it says, at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of your deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst the proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain, but I, will leave, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid." Here's what I need you to see. God does this purely out of his own agenda and desire to save. The people of Israel did nothing to deserve God's grace. And God just says, but I want to save some folks. And so I'm going to do it. And the same is true with you and I. 
If we come to God, it's because God sought us out and said, I want to make you my son or daughter. And everyone in here today, he's saying, I'm seeking you out and I wanna make you my son and daughter. All you have to do is place faith in me. Faith is not something that like, we do. Faith is God just saying, here's the deal, you can be saved. And we go, okay, I'll do that. And he changes our hearts, and so we want Jesus. We see him as the beautiful pearl of a great price, and he saves us purely out of his own gracious agenda. So that the Bible in the New Testament puts it like this. this is a verse you need to know. For by grace... You're saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God so that no one can boast. Faith is not even something we give to God. God helps faith to arise within us. We do nothing in the agenda for salvation. We hear the good message and we go, that's good news for me. And we believe. That's all we do which is really nothing. He did all the work. We did nothing. But the invitation to all of us is, will you believe today? Will you trust that your sin is really that bad and that salvation is really that good and that Jesus wants you? He wants to make you his son or his daughter. But here's what's amazing. That's not even the most shocking news perhaps in this passage. In fact, this next verse, few verses I'm gonna read are so shocking that I struggle this morning to believe them myself. God doesn't just wanna save you, but look at what it says. Verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said in Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion. Let your hands grow weak. Listen, the Lord, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you in loud singing. God doesn't just save us. He loves us. He's crazy about us. He purifies us and then he sings over us. And he says, I delight in my people. I don't just tolerate them. I don't just pity them and so I save them. No, I love them. That's why the Bible uses the language of adoption when it talks about our salvation. God doesn't just save us out of pity because he pities us and goes, man, I'm pretty awful. I guess I'll throw my bone. He says, now I'm choosing you to make my son or my daughter. You're adopted into the family and you get all the rights of a son or daughter. You get all the rights of Jesus in this family. And so he, he loves us. He chooses us and he says, come be a part of my family. I adopt you in. I love you so much that it delights my heart to sing over you. I mean, it, do, you, do you get this? God sings over us. 
He sings over himself, but he sings over us. He loves you so much that he's like a mama rocking a little baby and singing to it and says, I don't know how I could possibly love you anymore. That's how I feel for my kids. Like, I don't know how I could possibly love them anymore. If anybody tried to harm them, I would kill that person. I love these kids. They bring joy to my heart. I don't even know how to describe how much I love my kids. And you, if you're a parent, know that. And you, if you're a kid, hopefully know that your parents love you that much. Maybe you taste it a little bit with a brother or sister because you love, like, you'll, you'll fight with your brother or sister, but if anybody tries to pick on them, you'll kill that person. It's that sort of love, this fatherly, motherly, affectionate love that God has for us. Not because we deserve it, just because he chose to do it. And he wants to save. And, and he, he sings over us. Here, here I want to end with this story from a book about this whole verse. Sam Storms, a pastor that I, I love, man. He tells this story about counseling a woman in this congregation. And he says, uh, he says, Susan's father was a demanding tyrant. His so-called love for his daughter was cruelly and continually dangled in front of her like the proverbial carrot on a stick. His promise sounded tantalizing to Susan, but ultimately rung hollow. If you look pretty, I'll love you. If you make good grades, I'll love you. If you're successful and helpful and don't embarrass me in front of others, I'll love you. I'd heard similar stories before, but that didn't make her words any less difficult to endure. And she says, I was never quite pretty enough, slim enough, smart enough, she said. Susan never did get a bite of that carrot. All she could remember was the bitter aftertaste of her father's disdain and rejection. Susan and I spent considerable time working through the destructive consequences of her lack of experience with a father's love, but we weren't making much headway. Nothing had the impact we hoped for until I asked the question, what does God feel when he looks at you? Pity, she snapped back, never pausing to think about it. Why, I asked. Because I'm pitiful, I'm pathetic. For the next hour or so, I explained to Susan how much God loves her. I labored at finding just the right words to convince her it was true. It was tough going. I explained the depth of his love as expressed in the cross of Christ. I used images, vivid metaphors, countless word pictures. They all failed. The idea of a loving father who enjoyed her was incomprehensible to Susan. Nothing seemed to make sense. Then I had her read Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. That's how God feels about you, Susan. He looks at you, he thinks of you, and he sings for joy. She was stunned. God sings? God sings over me? After a few moments of shocked silence, tears began to well up in her eyes and eventually streamed down her cheeks. Sam, are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. But I'm so pathetic, she protested. I really am. I'm 30 pounds overweight, and I'd die if anyone saw the inside of my house right now. 
It's almost as messy as I am. My husband is furious at me again. I can't do anything right. And you say God sings over me with joy? I doubt it. More likely, he's screaming in disgust. My dad used to do that. Again, I asked her to read the passage. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. The tears returned. If only I could believe it were true. I think then I could almost face anything if only that were true. Susan's reaction to Zephaniah 3.17 was dramatic, but not unusual. I've seen it again and again. It has led me to a simple but startling conclusion. What makes life livable is enjoying the joy that comes from knowing one is enjoyed by God. What makes life for you and I livable is enjoying the joy that comes in our hearts from knowing that we're enjoyed by God. That's the gospel this morning. We're screwed up, and God loves us more than we could ever even fathom, so much so that out of pure delight, he sings over his people whom he has redeemed. And my invitation to you this morning, if you're a Christian, is to believe that again and to revel in the good news of the gospel that God sings over you and he didn't want heaven without us and he loves you. And my second invitation is that if you're not sure you're a Christian today, know that there is a God, that sin is real, but there, there is a God who loves you, longs to redeem you and sing over you in gladness. And the news really is that good. And I invite you to place faith today in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, um, I'm a mess myself. And uh, when I read these things, the gospel's so scandalous, it's hard for me to believe it. But I pray that you would help me, that you give me faith this morning, that you would help all of us and give us faith this morning to, to believe that you've done all the heavy lifting to punish our sin and to take it away from us because of Jesus and that you love us and that there's really never a moment in time once we're inside of Jesus that you ever look at us with even even a hurtful glance. There's no wrath left to be poured out on us because it was poured out in Christ. And so you love us. You love us with joy indescribable. You sing over us in joyous, boistering, emotional singing. And help us as a family today to embrace that gospel to rejoice in that gospel, to want to spread that gospel to everyone in the I-24 corridor. Help us as we sing. Help us as we take communion. Let this truth land on us, Holy Spirit. 
is all in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.